welcome to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right, you heard me. I said it's the Doxology and Theology Podcast, a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. My name is Matthew Westerholm. I serve as professor of worship at Southern Seminary. On today's episode, we are dipping into our worship resources to bring you a workshop by Mike Cosper. Mike is a writer and podcaster. He's actually the director of podcasting for Christianity Today. He's the author of Rhythms of Grace, Recapturing the Wonder and the Stories We Tell, as well as a number of different resources. In this workshop taken from our 2021 Doxology and Theology Conference, Mike brings to us 10 questions to ask every year. Hey everybody, Uh, it is great to be with you all. My name is Mike Cosper. Um, For 15 years I served as the pastor of worship at Sojourn Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, it was my honor to serve in a variety of ways church over the years um, we developed a whole songwriting ministry and um, a whole kind of philosophy of ministry around liturgy uh, that it's been amazing to see kind of what's happened with that uh, inside our church inside our church planning network and other places um, i'm excited to be with you here at dnt i think i've been at all of them um, even though i'm obviously not with you in person uh, or even in real time. So uh, it's a joy to be here. I'm, I'm thankful for this. Um, today, I'm going to walk through 10 questions to ask while planning worship. Um, this isn't necessarily like a top 10. This is more sort of peripheral questions that I think uh, can, in many of these cases, are, are issues that we take for granted around worship and worship planning. Um, and they're about, in many ways, they're about how worship forms who we are, where we are. Um, so, again, not you know, not comprehensive, and and certainly not in any any particular order. Um, just ten general questions, and and they're they're in three separate groups. So, uh, yeah. Without further ado, we will just dive right in. Um, the first set of questions are what I refer to as the context questions, um, and it's a it's trying to understand. How do we serve the church that, uh, that, like, how do we serve where we are? How do we honor our sense of place in worship? So the first question is, who is here? Um, how do we serve the people who are actually in our churches and congregations? And you might think that that's, you know, on the face of it, that's an obvious question. Uh, but in my experience, it's often not. I've, in many, many occasions, sat with church planters and worship leaders who've, uh, really, in a sense, kind of been longing for something else, been longing for a congregation different than the ones that God has put them to. Uh, one of the most notorious examples that I can remember was sitting with a church plant um, that had kind of started in a, in a hip neighborhood, in an urban context, and um, had moved, when they, when they had an opportunity to buy a building, they moved a couple neighborhoods over um, that was uh, pre- predominantly African-American, and maybe right on the cusp of starting to gentrify, um, 
um, younger folks were moving in, buying houses, etc. But predominantly African American, and and with good intentions. You know, the church was hoping to connect with the the people who were there. Um, but the congregation was largely white, um, largely young, uh, largely sort of middle class, and you know their efforts to to bridge the gap came in the form of you know sort of young white guys who played nothing but uh, the equivalent, this was quite a few years ago, but the equivalent of, of sort of Hillsong's uh, music, pop music, um, trying to learn their way into playing gospel music. And, you know, the comment they made to me was like, you know, when African-Americans do visit our church, they, they just comment they don't like when we try to do gospel songs. Why is that? And my encouragement to them was to say, you know, it's not who you are. Um, it comes off oftentimes as, as inauthentic and, um, and it, it comes off at times as, as, you know, and it sounds harsh, but it can come off as incompetent when you're trying to jump across a demographic that, that doesn't honor who you are. Um, I think there's a lot of ways that churches do this, you know, suburban churches trying to, to, to be a, 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 a hip, um, to create kind of a hip indie rock vibe, um, Rural churches trying to um, sound like their favorite church that, that lives at a city center somewhere. Um, you have to understand who your people are, who's here, and how do we honor them, um, rather than import uh, the sounds and ideas of, of other contexts. Um, you know, catchphrase that I have for this is, you know, if you can't be with the church you love, love the church you're with. Love the people who God has given you. Um, and, and finally, you know, Put your own preferences, whether it's cultural, aesthetic, etc. You need to restrain those pe preferences um, in order to to think about and serve and accommodate the desires and the heart language, the the musical and and you know even verbal uh, heart language of the people in your church. Um, the second question is who needs to be here, and this you know what you'll what you'll hear immediately is there's a sense in which these three questions are in in some conflict with each other um, because worship planning needs to be a dialogue of these ideas. There's not one dominant idea that's going to work because you're going to be in error. So in some ways, this next question is a contradiction with the first, which is who needs to be here? What's the language of the unbelievers in the area that the church is trying to reach? Um, so, and, and when I say language here, it's a shorthand for, for all the ways of expressing and communicating what would go into shaping worship service. Um, we narrowly define that as music oftentimes. Um, and I think that that narrow expression misses the point that music is, is one aspect of the life of the church. Um, preaching is another aspect of the life of the church. But so much of what you communicate about culture and about what you value is really in the content. So it's not necessarily even what style of songs you're singing, um, but what's the mood of the songs? What's the content? Um, is it all praise? Is it all lament? Is it um, is it all confession of sin and darkness? Um, you know, a, a prompt question that I think can be really helpful here is to say, if, if Jesus came to everyone in your neighborhood in a dream last night, and they all woke up and they were Christians, um, and they got together without any previous background and what it meant to be the church, what would their worship look like? What would their sound be like? What would their words be like? What would it look like for them to confess their sins, for them to proclaim the worth and glory of Jesus. Um, and then the third and final question in this, on this point is, who has been here before us? How do you honor the history of the congregation where you're serving, especially if you have older folks? Know their hymnal, know their favorite hymns and songs. 
um, don't just sing songs that were written in the last decade. Um, if you're going to sing hymns, don't just don't just sing the retuned hymns that you love. Sing some of the old hymns. Um, do some things in your gatherings that connect your church to the history of the church. Read an occasional creed. Sing an older hymn. Um, give people a sense that church didn't start with us. Um, so I, again, these three questions have some inherent tension. Um, and context and com contextualization is always a moving target. Um, there's not going to be a single moment in the church where you figure it out and you have it all in balance. These are going to be in dialogue with each other. Um, the second set of questions is what I would refer to as the clarity questions. And the first one here is, is it comprehensible? Um, a question to ask on this front is, how can we communicate the, the gospel in a way that avoids needless and empty jargon? And, you know, there's, there's a lot of parodies of this. There's, I just saw one on Instagram the other day that was really funny. Um, you know, the example I have here is, you know, it's so good to be fellowshipping with you today, church. I'm excited to begin dialoguing with you about the journey of the heart we're taking as the Lord sanctifies and mortifies so we can love on each other. Let's bathe this thing in prayer and ask for a hedge of protection around us. Um, those are all phrases if you've grown up in the church, been around the church for a few years, you've heard every single one of those little cliches over and over again. But if you're an outsider, that just sounds like gobbledygook. It sounds crazy. Um, you're speaking a foreign language. And what happens is that we, we create this subset of language for this little corner of our lives instead of learning to speak about our faith like we speak about all of our lives. Um, people often refer to this as, you know, speaking Christianese. Um, I think all the good rules of, of writing apply to preaching and to leading in worship. Um, simplify, simplify, simplify. Never use two words when one will do. Be allergic to cliches. Never use a big word when a small word will do. Have sympathy, have sympathy for your audience and constantly ask yourself, why should they care about what's happening right now in the service? And make sure you, you communicate that. Um, you know, one tip on this is read good writing, fiction, nonfiction, poetry. It will expand your available inventory of language. Um, I think one of the things that makes Tim Keller just an incredible preacher is that he's, his language is always fresh. It's always... It's always uh, renewed, and, and I think this is true of Russ Moore as well. And these are people who read deeply and read widely, um, including outside Christian circles. Um, the, the, the next um, question, the next clarity question is, is it worth the cost? Um, sometimes in order to, to incorporate certain historic elements into our gatherings, you'll have to take extra steps to explain what something might mean. Um, so, for instance, if you're going to say the Apostles' Creed together, some people are going to stumble over the word Catholic in the Creed. And I think um, there are great examples of, of churches and, and, and gatherings that I've been in where people take a moment and they say a sentence and they say, hey, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together today. Uh, we're going we're gonna to come across the word Catholic. And that's not referring to, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church, but that's referring to the universal church, the fact that we don't think that our one denomination has figured everything out. Um, we recognize that we're part of a church that's bigger than just us. Um, it can be that simple. Um, and so to include an element like that, or to include like a, a weighty theological term in a prayer or in a sermon or in a song, sometimes you just have to take a moment and, and ask yourself um, and, and, and give a sentence or two to explain what you mean. But the question I'm encouraging to you, you to ask is, is it worth the cost? Um, is it potentially distracting 
to have that sidebar discussion um, in order to use the word Catholic, for instance, rather than just replace it with universal um, or to cut it all together. Um, the the counter example I use to, to this all the time is uh, come thou fountain of, of every blessing and the Ebenezer verse. Um, for some reason, I found that, that there are a lot of people who just love that Ebenezer verse. And I, I confess I don't entirely know why. Um, and maybe that's a personal thing for me. But the fact is that 90% of the people who walk in the doors of your church, even people who've been Christians for a while, when they hear you sing, here I raise my Ebenezer, they're either distracted by it because they don't know what the heck you're talking about. Um, they've been made to feel stupid because you're, you're communicating a concept that they're just going to feel like, well, that's over my head. I don't know what's going on. Or they just hear it as Christianese and tune out and go, whatever they're talking about, it doesn't include me. Um, so again, you can take a moment and say, well, here's what an Ebenezer is, and I'm going to explain it to you. Um, or you can say, well, we're just not going to do that first. And so is it worth the cost? Is it worth taking the time to make sure that something is comprehensible? I would say the hard and fast rule is that um, you have a responsibility um, to the best of your ability to make everything that happens in the gathering comprehensible to the people who are there. Um, you're asking people to sing. You're asking people to pray. Um, you're putting words in their mouth. And I think it's irresponsible to, to ask them to sing things that we know they're not going to understand. Um, so, you know, different churches can get away with different things on this. Um, it depends on who's in your church. Um, if your church is predominantly, you know, a, a highly educated community, um, everybody's got graduate degrees or whatever, um, you can probably get away with, with thicker language than you can in other contexts. Um, people are going to choose different, make different decisions about these and thous. Um, and, you know, they're, you're going to, you, you can't bat a thousand on this either. You're going to have opportunities to, to sort of err on, on, on different sides on this. Um, it's a real critical place in, in this sense. It's a real critical place to teach preference and deference to the congregation. And this is a concept that says sometimes people are going to get what they prefer. Sometimes they're going to defer to others. So sometimes you're going to do things in your church that are going to stretch people to think. Um, sometimes you're going to do things in the church that are sort of lower on the shelves. And it's, you know, Paul talks about this concept of milk and meat. That's, that's exactly what this is. Um, so I could go on and on about this. I, I, I won't. I do want to recommend a resource on this, and it's Ron and Deborah Reenstra's book, Worship Words. Um, and that is just an incredible resource in thinking about language in the gathering. Um, Moving on, the, the theology questions. And, and these are fairly straightforward. Um, and I don't want to get into a rant here, but I think, um, I think there's some really important, some really important aspects of this that, that are worth uh, sort of drilling down on. And the first one is simply, is it true? Um, you know, every song we choose, no matter how much our church loves it or how much we love it personally, has to be scrutinized for church. And, you know, I think, uh, I think there are, our churches are singing a lot of stuff that simply isn't true. Um, it's emotive. It's compelling as an emotive concept sometimes. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every word of it is, is truthful. And in that sense, I don't know that, it's, that it, it means that everything is, is necessarily constructive and helpful. Um, you know, the most notorious example of this that I've ever seen is, um, you know, from, from years and 
it's from years and years ago now, but you know, the song above all, that was a massive hit. Um, and it got sang over and over again. And there's a line, you know, in the, in the chorus that says, you took the fall and thought of me above all. And that's just simply not true. Like, like the, the thought of, of Jesus in, in his death on the cross was not about atomized individuals. It was about redeeming the body of Christ and doing so to the glory of the Father. It was about much bigger things than, than me uh, as an individual, as much as he loves and values me as an individual. Um, so is it true? Um, secondly, who's the hero? of our worship services. Every worship service tells a story. Every worship service has an arc to it um, that leads to the church's, the service's conclusion. And often in North American evangelicalism, that's built around the sermon in such a way that it galvanizes the preacher as the hero of the service. Um, and I think in some places we hear, you know, I can't wait to hear from the Lord this morning in a gathering. And it, we actually mean, I can't wait to hear from our preacher this morning. And, um, you know, I, I think much of what we think of as contemporary and casual in our churches is adopted from ce uh, celebrity culture as well, where we prop up individuals. Um, again, that, that happens to preachers a lot. It also happens to worship leaders. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I think is super toxic in uh, churches that I see a lot is what I call the, the piano man phenomenon, which is that after a worship uh, service, after a gathering, um, people come up to the worship leader and they say, you know, uh, like the like in the like in the song Piano Man, you know, um, the the line from Piano Man is they sit at the bar and put bread in my jar and say, man, what is he doing here? Um, people do that to worship leaders all the time, and that's a terrible thing for the soul, for somebody to tell you, you know, we don't deserve you here in this church. You're so talented. You're so gifted. Um, don't believe that stuff when people tell you, like, no matter how talented and gifted you are, you're not too talented and gifted for your context. The Lord's put you there. Don't, don't think of yourself as the hero of the worship service. Um, there's a reason that almost every historic liturgy placed communion at the center of the gathering, um, that they treated the reading of God's word as central and sacred to the gathering. Um, they made a display of opening the scriptures. They made a display of the, the, the Bible, the word of God. They made the congregation stand and they reinforced the centrality and the importance of the scriptures by saying, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, one little side rant on this is that I think one of the, the worst things you can do symbolically in a gathering is read the scriptures from your phone. Um, it drives me crazy when I see this happen, that we're in the middle of a gathering and somebody pulls out their iPhone to read the Bible to, um, to the church. And, um, you know, I, I get that maybe people are, are trying to communicate, look, this thing is with you all the time. Maybe they're trying to communicate that. Um, what I would argue is that the moment you pull out your phone, you introduce all kinds of cultural baggage um, that, that you don't even realize you're carrying with you. Our phones are the center of our lives for all the wrong reasons. Um, so, to, you know, my encouragement to you is keep it, out of the, keep it out of the worship service. Let people see you reading from the Bible as much as you can. Let people see the symbolism and let it, let it speak powerfully. All right, moving along. I'm, I, gotta, I gotta land the plane here. So the last batch of questions here are the, um, what, what I refer to as the, the pastoral questions. Um, the first one is, is it participatory? 
And very simply, if the church isn't doing the singing, the praying, and actively involved in the gathering, then you're doing it wrong. Um, worship services are a work of the people, and it's ground zero for spiritual formation. And the things that you have them say and do during the service are going to stick with them throughout their lives. Um, you know, I believe it was Wesley who said, um, I know that people won't walk away um, easily quoting my sermons, but they will walk away singing our psalms. Um, this is why the English Reformation was so invested in hymns. They knew that hymns were portable theology, a, a memorable way for people to think about God and to pray. Um, so, so look at your gathering and ask yourself, is the gathering centered around the people of God being able to, to actively worship together, to actively sing and, and pray and reflect on um, their spiritual lives? Um, our North American tradition, contemporary church tradition, thinks of worship services as songs and sermons. And often they think of the former as being an appetizer for the, lat for the latter. And that's a flawed, narrow vision of the worshiping life of the church. Um, so, again, I could go on and on. I'm going to try to save for time here. Um, the next one, uh, the pastoral question is, does it speak to rich and poor alike? Um, we covered this a little bit before, but ask yourself, how would a, uh, a poor person um, feel like when they came from your church? Um, you know, I love theology, I love rich sermons, I love rich songs, but sometimes a worship service um, that's really heavy and really dense um, does a disservice to people who, who don't come from advantaged uh, educational backgrounds. And they show up in your church and you're speaking over their head and it's a foreign language and they feel like, oh, there's no place for me here. Um, there's no place for me to come and learn. Um, that's not always the, the case um, for every person who's going to come from that kind of context, but um, it's a significant question to be asking. Um, you know, some of the churches that I think get a lot of traction um, in and, and have a lot of influence in, uh, particularly in our kind of young reformed, I don't think maybe we're just the, the reformed movement now, we're not so young anymore. Um, but some of the churches that get a lot of traction in our movement uh, often serve contexts where the church, the congregations are upper class and are highly educated. And so they can speak at that kind of level. Um, it doesn't mean you can't, but ask yourself, understand that context and understand that people are going to come in at all kinds of levels. Are you being hospitable to those who are poor and come into your midst, who aren't thriving and coming into your midst? Um, another way to acknowledge the poor is acknowledge injustice. Um, lament together the injustice and the suffering of the world. And, uh, and that kind of gets the point to, to, the, to the final point here, which is does it prepare people for their encounters with death? Um, you know, after 9-11, um, there, was, there was kind of a demarcation point in the life of the church after 9-11. And I heard Harold Best talk about this uh, uh, way back then, uh, almost 20 years ago now. Um, that 9-11 happened and the contemporary worship movement had nothing to say. And it's no surprise that in the years that followed, um, particularly in the decade that followed, there was kind of a revival of the hymn book, uh, a rediscovery of the hymn book. Um, you know, the North American church is addicted to hype and energy and victory. Let's take the next hill. Let's win the next campaign. Um, but life, as it turns out, is full of sadness and disappointment. Um, so ask yourself, does your worship um, service 
equip people for visits to hospitals and gravesides. And there's a moment in, in my life as a worship leader that I'll never forget, and I'll land with this, which is that it was a Sunday morning, and we were a, about to pray a prayer of lament, and I was part of the band that was playing that Sunday. And I remember looking out, and there were three women sitting just a few seats apart together on the same row. And uh, on the left was a woman. Her name was Victory. She had just gotten baptized a few weeks ago. And her story was that at 15, she had been essentially abducted and, and trafficked. Um, and, and then for the next 20, 25 years, she worked in the, in the sex industry, either being trafficked or working as a stripper or whatever. And some, some women came in the strip club one night, they shared the gospel with her, and, and her life was changed. Um, but she comes to church every week with this, this story and this burden and, this, and this, this pain and trauma. A few seats away from her was uh, one of my best friends, uh, my, my wife and I's best friends, this woman named Amy. Um, she's a surgeon here in Louisville and an elite surgeon. But like every doctor, um, you have... Uh, you have patients who, who, who don't make it. And she'd had a bad week that week. We had, we had spent some time with her that week and she'd lost a couple patients. And uh, it's just a tremendous burden, something you never get past. And so she came in burdened. And then a few seats away from her was our friend, Jenna. And Jenna had a six-month-old baby and a, a massive cancerous tumor that she had just discovered. And um, the prognosis wasn't good. And so here we were in our gathering um, with three people coming in um, with these just incredible burdens, this incredible care, uh, incredible um, need for the grace of God and for affirmation that their burdens um, mattered to God. Um, and, you know, that's happening all the time. Those people are in your church every Sunday, every single week. And if it's all victory all the time, um, we communicate to those people that their pain has no place here. Um, so my challenge to you on that front would be to just simply ask yourself, is our gathering preparing people for suffering and death so that when those times come, um, through the prayers of the church, through the songs of the church, they've already been given the words and practiced the words that they need to sing and say in those moments. So I hope this is helpful. Sorry for going a couple minutes long. Um, blessings to each of you, and, uh, and thanks for showing up. See you. That is a hard place to stop, but if you'd like to hear more from Mike Cosper, more resources like this, more things that can help you and your ministry, please go to our website. It's called biblicalworship.com, and on there you will find all sorts of podcast episodes and hymn arrangements and video resources for you and your ministry that are all available completely for free at biblicalworship.com. Head over there now. That's what we have for you this time on the Doxology and Theology podcast. Our show is produced by the lanky Evan Jarms, engineered by Caleb Sherwood, and the music is by our good friend Joel Nagus. Until next time, this is Dr. Matthew Westerholm reminding you that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. Peace be with you.